Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that whenever a believer sins, it breaches that uh, permanent, uh, excuse me, it breaches that ongoing relationship that we have with the Father in time. Our permanent salvation is never lost, but our ongoing fellowship is broken. That ongoing ministry of God the Holy Spirit that produces Spiritual growth for us is also breached, and when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant, we are cleansed of all sin, and we are restored to fellowship. We recover the ongoing ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and it is through his ministry that we learn his word, and we store, he stores it in our soul. He recalls it to memory and uses that to produce spiritual growth. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word reveals to us that which is absolute truth. It is revealed by you through the process of inspiration whereby you have breathed out your word through the human writers of Scripture, guaranteeing that what they wrote would be without error. Your word, therefore, is absolutely true and infallible. It is also sufficient. And as the word of the eternal creator God who created the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them, it is your word that addresses every issue in life. As the psalmist said, it is in your light that we see light. It is in the illumination of your word that we are able, therefore, to understand and to properly interpret the data that we experience around us in our day-to-day lives. And it is your word, therefore, that provides us with that eternal framework for truth. And as our Lord prayed before he went to the cross, it is... Uh, Your word is truth, and that we are sanctified or set apart by your word, by truth. So, Father, now as we devote ourselves in this coming uh, hour to your word, we pray that you would use that to challenge our thinking, to shape our thinking, that we would think your thoughts after you and think about your creation 
as you made it and not as we would have it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is our fourth session in a short series entitled Decision Making Decision Making in the Voting Booth. The early part of the 1600s when a colonist first came to establish British colonies on this continent, it was a standard procedure in local assemblies, in colonial assemblies, and down through the uh, decades and centuries up to the early part of the 20th century to have what was known as an election sermon, not dealing with the biblical doctrine of election, but dealing with the fundamental issues that faced a society, a culture, that faced a nation, that faced lawmakers. And in these sermons, the preach local pastors would be invited to the assemblies to address a sermon from the Word of God, not some 10- or 15-minute emotional devotional, but these were often very challenging, forthright uh, sermons that revealed a tremendous amount of courage on the part of the pastors as they truly did challenge, attempt to correct uh, what, it, what they perceived to be flaws in governmental policy uh, down through those ages. These, this tradition of the election sermon, along with other sermons that uh, were standard in most churches throughout this era, sort of fallen by the wayside. We do not always have uh, these kinds of specials. And I thought it was uh, important in light of the election coming up to address what the Bible says about fundamental issues that we can and should go to the Word of God to find a frame of reference in order to evaluate the candidates that we select to govern our nation. This has precedence uh, biblically and precedence historically. We understand also that the Word of God as the revelation of the one who created all things addresses all things. If God says anything about anything, he says something about everything. That is a, I don't have time to explicate that, go home, chew on it for a while. But uh, that is something that is a bedrock truth. So we can go to God's word, and while he may not be addressing a political treatise in some place or economic treatise in some place, that the groundwork, the, the foundation of the parable, the, the laws, whatever, uh, are grounded in certain principles which are embedded in those laws or those principles, the parables or whatever, and those things do not work. Those parables, those stories, those uh, principles that are being elucidated by a prophet or by the Lord or by an uh, apostle in the New Testament don't work unless there is the assumption of the validity of the political and or economic principles underlying uh, those, particular assert- those particular assertions. So we've had a threefold summary that I'm going to put up here on the board. Unfortunately, the video on Thursday night um, was attacked by the video recording machine, and so that video is gone. The uh, sound, the MP3s, though, are available. I gave a series of rationales this last week that led to three conclusions. That's all I'm going to give this morning. 
first conclusion was that all Christians who are citizens of the U.S. should vote wisely and intelligently to preserve and defend the Constitution, for this glorifies God. Scripture says everything that we do, uh, whatever we think, whatever we do, whatever we say should glorify God, so that would involve any responsibilities we have in the civil arena. Therefore, the U.S. citizen, in order to vote intelligently and wisely, must understand the thinking embodied in the U.S. Constitution so that he can vote in a way that preserves and protects our heritage and preserves and protects the Constitution. And by understanding this biblical framework, which I established, took two two sessions to establish that the founders operated within a self-conscious biblical framework, Uh, a Christian can then vote more intelligently and wisely to preserve and protect the Constitution and the freedoms that it recognizes. Foundational verse for our study that we'll we'll see in terms of some application later on, uh, Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any uh, people. Understanding that righteousness is something that is available in terms of experiential righteousness and in terms of law to any nation, not just Israel. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous rule, the people uh, rejoice. I pointed out last Sunday morning in our first session that there's one issue that's foundational to uh, any election process, especially a national process, uh, national election, because it involves the appointments, numerous appointments, thousands of appointments to the judiciary. And I pointed out that there is a fundamental issue that faces Uh, the entire uh, legislative judicial process today, and that is the issue of of interpretation, same issue that you face in much of theology, and that is do you interpret uh, the Bible literally, historically, and grammatically as the writers intended, or do we assign some new meaning to the text that it did not even enter the thinking of the original uh, writers? With the advent of liberal uh, philosophy and theology uh, as a result of the Enlightenment shift that occurred in the 17th and 18th centuries, theology in Western Europe and America shifted in the 19th century, rejecting literal interpretation and original intent of the authors and replaced it with uh, modern man's ideas, assuming that modern man knew more, understood more, and could uh, interpret things better than the original authors. This didn't affect only theology. It affected things across the board, including the uh, interpretation of law. Last week, when we talked about this, I, got, I did not have this quote last week. Somebody emailed it to me, and I've used it during the week. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, in a speech a week ago Thursday, said, let me put it this way, there are really only two ways to interpret the Constitution. Try to discern at best what we can, uh, what the framers intended, or make it up. Now, that's the same issue in biblical hermeneutics. It's the uh, same issue across the board. Is is You read your real estate contract, you read your contract with your credit card company, do you interpret it as they intended or do you just make it up? So we uh, almost intuitively realize that original intent is significant. But then there's a second quote there, which uh, someone sent me this last week and I checked it out, that back in July, on July 17th, 
addressing a Planned Parenthood conference. Senator Obama uh, addressed the uh, Supreme Court's recent decision, Gonzalez versus Carhartt, which upheld a ban on partial birth abortion. And in that speech, he said, the Constitution can be interpreted in so many ways. See the contrast? Thomas says interpretations based on original intent. Obama says it can be interpreted so many ways, just like liberal theologians think, oh, you can interpret the Bible all kinds of different ways. There is a connection between politics and liberal politics, liberalism in politics and liberalism in theology. And he went on to say, we need somebody who's got the heart, the empathy to recognize what it's like to be a young teenage mom, the empathy to understand what it's like to be poor or African-American or gay or disabled or old, and that's the criteria by which I'm going to be selecting my judges. So the criteria isn't legal education and ability to understand the law in terms of its original intent, but feeling, so that emotion, feeling, and empathy now becomes the criteria for him for interpreting law. Let's, let, let me put this in terms of theology. This is the political equivalent to trading in your Schofield Reference Bible or Ryrie Study Bible for a Joel Osteen Bible. <laughs> Feeling and emotion become the criterion rather than what the text says. So, we moved on from there to look at the basic criteria that we should have which was embedded in the thinking of the Founding Fathers. And that comes from a doctrine we've studied many times called the Divine Institutions. And the Divine Institutions provide a framework for thinking about society and culture and making decisions. And whenever you make a decision, you go into the voting booth and you select a candidate, you are making a determination that this person or that person is good, better, best, or the other person perhaps is uh, bad or worse. And so you make these value judgments. And whenever you make a value judgment, you're assuming that there is an external standard by which you can evaluate a candidate's positions and their beliefs. If you're going to say this person is better or that person is worse, you have to have some sort of guideline. And the scripture says that it is the only guideline, the only framework for a believer to use in evaluating anything in life. Uh, It starts, while the Bible is not a political science textbook, there are crucial passages in the scripture that address uh, political theory. It's not an economic textbook, but there are crucial things in the scripture that have uh, been understood throughout uh, the years to uh, make certain economic uh, assertions and implications. And these have been systematized and understood in terms of this category of the divine institutions. And so we begin to look at those. So let's just make a couple of observations by way of review that the term divine institution has been used by Christians, by theologians, to speak of absolute social structures established by God and embedded within the social structure of the human race from its inception. Thus, these are for the entire human race, believers and unbelievers alike, They are unbreakable realities. Once you go in and try to start changing these things that have all sorts of negative uh, consequences. 
In contrast, modern paganism or human viewpoint thinking views them as byproducts of man's psychosocial evolution and thinks of them as cultural conventions. Conventions can be changed, but institutions uh, cannot be changed. And so these divine institutions are therefore embedded in uh, in the scripture. Now, as we look at these divine institutions, I pointed out that there are five. There's a sixth criteria, in case you're wondering, and that has to do with how any Gentile nation relates to the nation Israel, and we'll be addre- I'll be addressing that as a subcategory related to the fifth divine institution when we get there on Tuesday night. So we have individual responsibility marriage and family, which are established before the fall. Now, that's very important to understand that, that prior to the fall, these three are established, so this is part of uh, God's original intent for mankind before sin. Second, we have uh, the establishment of two more divine institutions after the fall, after the fall, after the flood. Uh, government and judicial responsibility is delegated to man in the Noahic Covenant, and then nations and the distinction of nations and national identities established after the Tower of Babel. The first three are pre-fall, and they are designed to promote productivity and advance civilization. When these three are working together in, in their most efficient way, then that society or culture is going to be advancing and is going to be uh, productive. The second two, which come after the fall, are designed to restrain evil so that one, two, and three can function efficiently. Now, there's a real limitation there. There's When you think of government and nations being designed to restrain uh, evil so that uh, individual responsibility, marriage, and family uh, can, be, can be promoted and go forward. Now, the first divine institution we looked at Thursday night, its individual responsibility, comes out of God's initial mandates to Adam after he had created him, primarily Genesis 1, 27 to 28, and Genesis 2, 15 uh, and 25. Genesis 1, 27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So male and female are both equally in the image of God. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here you have uh, five mandates. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish uh, of the sea, rule over basically all the creatures God set upon the earth. In Genesis 2.15, God places Adam in the garden to tend and keep it. And the word to tend is the Hebrew word to work. And the word for keep is a Hebrew word, shamar, which means to keep or to protect or to uh, guard. And I believe that the idea here is he had uh, work to do to serve the Lord. It's not laborious. See, a lot of people just stumble over this because they, can't, they, they think that Adam sat in the garden and twiddled his thumbs until he sinned. But that's not what happened. He had responsibilities to carry out. And this is a foundation for the doctrine of responsible labor. And it labored, though, in a post-fall environment. We just can't get past the idea in our little experience-oriented brains that work is laborious and that labor is toilsome. 
But before the fall, labor was not toilsome and work was not uh, was was not hard. It was not diff- difficult. It was not uh, uh, painful for us or toilsome for us. And that happens only as a result of sin when there is antagonism set up between the cre- creation and the creature is outlined in the curse of Genesis chapter 3. So I pointed out that in under the individual responsibility, there are three key uh, ideas that are developed from this. The first is spiritual accountability and authority. The man is under the authority of God, and every individual is accountable to God for what he does with the resources that God gives him. The second thing that comes out of this is man is responsible in the area of labor to take care of the garden and to protect uh, the garden. And as he takes care of the garden and does what God has told him to do, a result of that is that it develops wealth. It would develop uh, numerous products as a result of responsible labor done correctly, and this then would uh, lead to private property. And if you go back and you read many of the early writers, such as Blackstone in his commentaries on English law, or you read John Locke, you read any number of other thinkers that came out of that period, it's, they go back and they locate the principle of private property in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. And they understood that private property and individual responsibility were foundational to the whole concept of, of, uh, of liberty. So we address these issues on Thursday night and towards the end as I was running out of time. I pointed out that there are several principles that are articulated again and again in the Scriptures and that are embedded within teaching in the Scripture, and I'm going to run through those again very rapidly uh, right now. Uh, In Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, on a parable related to stewardship, and this is a situation where uh, the uh, landowner, is addressing the, the, the steward and deciding and hiring men, goes out to the local labor pool down on Gessner and Long Point and uh, hires uh, various uh, people to work on his project at different times during the day, promising them uh, at the beginning a denarius for a day's work. And then each one after that, he just gives, says he'll do that which is righteous, uh, hires the last ones about five in the afternoon at nightfall. Notice it's not an eight-hour workday. Uh, at nightfall, when he comes back, he begins to pay off his workers. And the ones he hired last that only worked a couple of hour, he, hours, he pays them a denarius, which is what he promised the ones he hired at the beginning of the day. Now, the, there are various principles that are being taught there doctrinally, but what those, those don't work unless the underlying principles related to economics and employment are true. Because at the end of the, at the end of his discourse, Jesus makes the statement, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? As the landowner, he's making the statement, is it not lawful for me what to do what I wish with what is my own? That a business owner has the right to do what he wants to do with what are his assets. He 
has the right to do that without interference of government regulation, telling him what kind of insurance he should have or how long the workers should work or, or any of the other things that hinder uh, business and destroy capital today. So it is very strongly in favor of the very strongly in favor of the employer, the landowner. Second pa- passage I pointed out was in Matthew 18:23, which also emphasizes a steward, and this time he owes money to his employer. And this just emphasizes the fact that the uh, both of accountability, personal accountability of each each one to the landowner, who in this case is God, so it reinforces the first divine institution, but it also reinforces the prerogatives of the employer to do what he will and make the decisions he will. Third, in Matthew 25:14, we looked at the parable of the talents, and you have three different groups of people, or three different servants, rather, uh, each given a different number of talents. The first two invest them and make a reward uh, or, or make a profit, Rather, and the third one is afraid of his master, so he's lazy, and he doesn't do anything with it. He just buries it in the ground. Then when the uh, master comes back, he digs it up. And when he digs it up, the evaluation is this, that the, those who made a profit are praised, and they are given more, and those, the one who was lazy is called wicked and lazy, and what he had was taken away from him. So what we see here is the principle that uh, those who risk, those who work should be rewarded, and those who don't are condemned. And uh, therefore, laziness is seen as a vice, work is a virtue, and Jesus doesn't come back and say, oh, you poor person, you were afraid of me. Uh, let's take from the one who made and share the wealth and give it to the one who didn't do anything. So it shows that the Bible cannot be interpreted within a Marxist our socialist framework. The fourth principle we saw from a couple of passages in the New Testament was that those who don't work don't eat. Ephesians 4.28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, that he will have something to share with the one who has need. 1 Thessalonians 3.10-12, through 12. Uh, If anyone is not willing to work, Paul says, then he is not to eat Either, This is reinforced again and again. Fifth point I made was that in the scripture, from the beginning to the end, there is an emphasis on uh, on various things related to taxes. Inheritance taxes are condemned in Proverbs 13.22 and 1 Chronicles uh, 28.8. Uh, inheritance taxes, by the way, were developed by Marx and implemented by Lenin in order to prevent wealth accumulation, take wealth away from the wealthy, and transfer the wealth to the poor. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Second Corinthians 12.14 says, Now for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. In other words, parents should be accumulating wealth that they pass on through inheritance to the children so that over time the family uh, accumulates wealth. Uh, Sixth, we saw that uh, in the Scripture property there are no property taxes 
in the Mosaic Law because property taxes prevent wealth accumulation and imply that the uh, government owns the land and the people do not have actual true ownership. And in Israel, that was not allowed. Seventh, we saw that the tithe related to the income tax in Israel was a flat rate tax of 10% that applied to everybody, rich or poor. If you didn't make much, you still gave 10%. You didn't have a progressive uh, income tax. It shows that there was an income tax that's legitimate, but it's only legitimate if it is uh, equal for everyone. So when we take these principles and apply them to our two major presidential candidates, we discover that both of them rate rather badly on this. Uh, Senator Obama is worse because he is still proud of his share of the wealth view, which he uh, gave famously now in that interview with Joe the Plumber. When he was interviewed uh, by some uh, news person on Friday, he was asked if he still, still would give the same answer, and he rather proudly said that he would. So that's the real issue, not Joe the Plumber, is that Obama believes that those who have should forcibly give it up for those who do not have. And, uh, in fact, this a whole idea of a progressive income tax was first attempted in the 19th century, but Congress, uh, but the Supreme Court declared that it was uh, unconstitutional. It wasn't until uh, 1913 with, uh, with a constitutional amendment that made it possible to have a progressive income tax. So the idea that we get from socialism and from Marxism is that uh, a whole theory of labor and wealth that is contradictory to the scriptures and contradictory to the first divine institution, which has to do with individual uh, responsibility. So that brings us to our second divine institution, our second divine institution, which is marriage. Second divine institution is marriage. Now, marriage is defined as being between one man and one woman in the Scripture. This begins in Genesis chapter 2. Now, what's interesting is if we look at Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to open your Bibles there, highlight this one particular verse. As we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see in this chapter the details of what happened on that sixth day when God created man. Now, I want to remind you, pointed out from Genesis 1:26 to 28, that God created male and female in his image. Now, he doesn't create them at the same time, according to Genesis chapter 2. First, he created the man, and then he creates the woman. In between the creation of the man and the creation of the woman, he gave the man certain uh, guidelines related to his role responsibility to work and protect the garden. By the way, the idea of protecting the garden is a foundational verse for understanding the right of of self-protection, the right to protect your property with whatever you deem necessary and is foundational to the whole principle of the Second Amendment that we have a right to keep and bear arms. And and I evaluated that the other night and pointed out that uh, Senator Obama has a record of increasing gun control 
whereas Senator McCain uh, does not. But the principle of self-protection and being able to have uh, weapons, even access to the latest technology to protect your property, is uh, embedded in Scripture. And Luke chapter 22, Jesus made sure the disciples were armed with swords when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Recognition of this uh, right to have uh, uh, concealed carry without a concealed carry permit. It's an embedded, uh, embedded right, all part of uh, that first divine, divine institution. So the man was to keep and guard the garden, and it gives him a responsibility to begin to uh, name the animals as exercising his role to rule and over the animals and to subdue the animals. And as Adam goes through this process, which God was using to show Adam he didn't have a comparable mate, uh, he gets to a point where God is now going to create the woman. Down in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, when we look at this, what we discover is that the woman is created in order to be a helper to the man. The word that is used for the woman being a helper in verse 18 is the word "aitzer," a word that is commonly used to refer to God. It is a word that is even uh, comparable to the word parakaleo or paraclete, parakletos, kletos, rather, in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit. An assistant, this is not a lowly position. This is a very high position. In fact, the only uh, being that is assigned the role of uh, an answer in Scripture, other than the woman, is God. So it's a rather high uh, term as opposed to the feminist agenda, which wants to make a helper into something that is subservient and low and of, of lesser lesser value. So this just, again, is an agenda that runs counter to what the Word of God says. And this takes us back again to something I talked about on Thursday night, which is that it's important to understand the basic nature of God in understanding these things. Because God exists as a trinity, a triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three distinct persons. And there's two different ways in which we can look at the trinity. One has to do with the essential, and by that I mean the essence or being of God, the essential relationships of the three persons in the trinity. And that's sometimes referred to by uh, theologians as the ontological Trinity, ontology just being a fancy word for essence or being. God in his being, you have three persons who are co-equal. They are equally righteous, equally omniscient, equally omnipotent, equally loving. So in their essence and their being, which shows a society of three persons, they are uh, co-equal. So you have at one level, at one way of looking at the Trinity, a social dimension related to their essence. On the other side, you have uh, a, you can describe the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in terms of what they do. 
In other words, their work or their labor. And when we look at it that way, that is called the economic trinity. So you have the ontological trinity and the economic trinity, and you can't separate them. They are inseparably connected. One has to do with the relationships, the social structure of the trinity. The other has to do with the economic structure of the trinity. And you can't separate the social from the economic. We hear people today, uh, someone recently said to me as he was cutting my hair that I am a fiscal conservative but a social liberal. See, that's the idea that you can separate the social from the economic. You can't do that in God, and you couldn't do that in man as he was created initially in the garden, for he is given an economic purpose to rule and subdue, to work the garden and to keep it, and he is given a wife that's social, if you didn't guess, that's social in order to help him in the economic function. So as man and woman were originally created, they had both social and economic, just as God did as part of being uh, in the in the image of God. So the woman is created to help the man as an Aetzer. She ha- is to enable him to fulfill and to assist him in the fulfillment of these God-given mandates that we've seen in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, after the fall, there are problems that enter into marriage because of sin, and only through salvation can those problems be overcome. That's the purpose of, of the New Testament passages uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 related to husbands loving your wives and wives being obedient to your husbands, addressing areas of tension that result from the fall. But that's not the purpose of our uh, discussion uh, this morning. The I- issue here is on marriage. And what we see from the Old Testament is that God protects marriage through various laws that we have in the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is just one instance of a legal system that reflects a higher divine standard of righteousness, going back to that initial verse that righteousness exalts a nation. So there is this assumption of righteousness that is defined in one way in the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was given just for Israel, but it gives us a certain pattern and model for understanding the, uh, the relationship of law. And it was a good thing. Deuteronomy chapter 4 through 8 is a crucial passage for understanding this. God, through Moses, is addressing the people, and he says, See, I've taught you statutes and judgment, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. In other words, you're going to take this law code and you're going to implement it when you're in the land as a nation. So Moses says, So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the what? In the sight of the peoples, the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles, who will hear all these statutes, and what will they say? When all these surrounding nations look at Israel and hear about the Mosaic Law, what are they going to say? Wow, what a rigorous, legalistic, 
servile system. They're just enslaved to God. Is that what they say? No. They say, wow, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In verse 8. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you this day? Defining the law as righteous. Okay? Now, does that mean that other nations should just come and take the Mosaic law whole hog and apply it to their government? No, of course not. Because there were certain things that were unique and distinct about the Mosaic law related to Israel because Israel was the select people of God and he was entering into a specific kind of contract with them. But what is embedded in the Mosaic law for our purposes is that it is it reflects certain uh, universal principles that God embedded within uh, society and within the human race uh, that uh, endure and should be applied uh, without respect to culture or nation or, or background. And one of these has to do with the protection of marriage. There were prohibitions against adultery, against fornication, against homosexuality, bestiality, and all of these things because they would attack the basic institution of marriage, which is foundational to family. And if marriage and family collapse, then ultimately government and the nation collapse. So each of these divine institutions we see build upon previous ones. And when the foundational ones start to fragment, then those that are built on them fall apart. And we see that historically in our nation for the past 150 years. The move has been away from personal accountability and holding people responsible to work, to provide for themselves, to care of themselves, and marriages, that there's accountability within marriage, and we've seen a marriage fall apart, uh, and then families and family uh, families fall apart, and this just escalates from one, uh, one decade uh, to another. In the Mosaic Law, there, are, uh, there was one commandment, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Within the Mosaic Law itself, there were various other laws related to uh, fornication, related to adultery, related to these other uh, other uh, sins that attacked marriage. Key passage on this is Leviticus 20, verses 10 and following. And I, the key verse here related is verse uh, 12, I think, that relates to, uh, uh, or 13, that relates to uh, homosexuality, but I want you to notice it's within a context. Because in the current debate over uh, gay marriage, same-sex marriage, it's as if they want to, they, th- they, they, they respond to this as if it's just singled out as some heinous, horrible sin. There's no understanding of what sin is. That sin includes all kinds of things, uh, not the least of which is uh, homosexuality. It's not some uh, super sin. But it is an attack against basic divine institutions of both marriage and family. In Leviticus 20:10 and following, we read: If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So it's a capital offense. Why is it taken so seriously? Because it will, if allowed permissively to continue, it will uh, destroy marriage, destroy the family, and fragment the culture. If there's a man who lies with his father's wife, 
He has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Verse 12, there's a man who lies with his daughter-in-law. Both of them shall surely be put to death. They've committed incest. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Verse 13, there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman. Both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Verse 14, there's a man who marries a woman and her mother. It is immorality. You can't marry both the woman and your mother-in-law. Just warning, guys. Uh, (laughs) Both he and they shall be burned with fire so that there will be no immorality in your midst. Verse 15, there's a man who lies with an animal. He shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. So all of these relate to a foundation in the Mosaic Law. It's restated in the New Testament passages like Romans 1, 26 and 27 that homosexuality or sodomy is a uh, ongoing uh, part of God's judgment on a nation that's already rejected him. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passages, uh, passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own pe- persons the due, due penalty of their error. It is a self-judgment. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9. Again, list this, but it's in the context of a grocery list of sins. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, which isn't salvation? It has to do with rewards in eternity. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not singled out as some sort of unique special sin. It is, though, listed in a series of sins. And just as we don't want to legitimize... um, uh, thieves and murderers and uh, idolaters. We don't want to legitimize uh, homosexuality or effeminate has to do with the uh, uh, female side of homosexuality, homosexuality, the masculine side. Then we get into other passages like First Timothy 1, 9, and 10, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the godly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Okay, so the point that is understood from the Scripture is that these sins are, these acts are sins. And in the New Testament, they don't have a death penalty imposed upon these particular sins of homosexuality or adultery or fornication, and the reason is is because in the Old Testament that's part of a law code for a nation, but in the New Testament there, the the issue is giving ethical principles that are to be instantiated in the lives of believers. It's not related to a nation. Does that mean that they shouldn't be death penalty? Well, that depends on the nation and how they want to make their laws. The New Testament isn't making a statement that the death penalty is removed because it's not addressing that question. It is addressing another issue, and that is the ethical foundation of what is sin and what is not sin. It's not providing a, a constitution for a nation or a law code. So a nation could make them capital offenses or might not make them capital offenses, but the principle is that Marriage and family have to be protected legally because that's the role of government. Those last two divine institutions, government and nations, which are given after the flood and after the fall, 
are designed to protect the first three divine institutions so that productivity can be ensured. This was understood by our founding fathers. Uh, Zephaniah Swift, who is the author of one of America's first legal texts in 1795, wrote that sodomy, though repugnant to every sentiment of decency and delicacy, is very prevalent in corrupt and debauched countries. No country has ever legalized uh, homosexual marriage and been productive or survived. I don't think any nation has ever legalized it anyway. Um, it's very prevalent in corrupt and debauched countries where the low pleasures of sensuality and luxury have depraved the mind and degraded the appetite below the brutal creation. Charles Carroll recognized, as did many other founders, that without morals a republic cannot subsist any length of time. If their morals are related to responsibility and if people do not live responsibly, then a government based upon people acting responsibly cannot survive. So then government has to be, turn itself into a uh, nanny state. Uh, James Otis, another founding father, wrote, When a man's will and pleasure is his only ruling guide, what safety can there be either for him or against him but in the point of a sword? When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, as stated in Judges, pure uh, postmodern cultural uh, relativism, then the, the fabric of the culture will completely deteriorate. The early decisions of the courts of this country upheld this kind of thinking consistently throughout the 19th century. New York Supreme Court said that the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity. The people whose manners and morals have been elevated and inspired by means of the Christian Religion. The Florida Supreme Court said that the Christian concept of right and wrong or right and justice motivates every rule of equity. It is the guide by which we dissolve domestic frictions and the rule by which all legal controversies are settled. That was actually in the early 20th century, I believe. Um, one of the early uh, legal texts used in the United States was published in 1814. The author was John David McAllis, and it was entitled Commentaries on the Law, Law of Moses. And that he wrote for it, sodomy, once, once it begins to prevail, not, um, not only will boys be easily corrupted by adults, but also by other boys, nor will it ever cease, more especially as it must thus soon lose all its shamefulness and infamy and become fashionable and the national taste and then national weakness, for which all remedies are ineffectual, must inevitably follow not perhaps in the very first generation, but certainly in the course of the third or fourth. Whoever, therefore, wishes to ruin a nation has only to get this vice introduced, for it is extremely difficult to extirpate it where it has once taken root because it can be propagated with much more secrecy. And when we perceive that it has once got a footing in any country, however powerful and flourishing, we may venture as politicians to predict that the foundation of its future decline is laid and that after some hundred years it will no longer be the same powerful country it is at present. How uh, prescient of him to observe exactly what has happened over the last uh, hundred years or so in the history of this nation. In reference to this, in light of uh, scriptural framework in light of the political history of the United States, we can evaluate our two prominent uh, candidates. And this, what I'm going to read to you is a quote from Senator Obama's open letter to homosexuals, which is located 
on his website. He writes, Throughout my career, I have fought to eliminate discrimination against LGBT Americans, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transvestite Americans, if you're not up on the lo- local, on the latest acronyms. That's the proper term they use today, LGBT Americans. In Illinois, I co-sponsored a fully inclusive bill that prohibited discrimination on the basis of both sexual orientation and gender identity, extending protection to the workplace, housing, and places of public accommodation. A church is a workplace, folks. Uh, In the U.S. Senate, I have co-sponsored bills that would equalize tax treatment for same-sex couples and provide benefits to domestic partners of federal employees. And as president, I will place the weight of my administration behind the enactment of the Matthew Shepard Act to outlaw hate crimes and a fully inclusive employment non-discrimination act that applies to churches and Christian organizations as well, to any organization who employs anyone, to outlaw workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. As your president, I will use the bully pulpit to urge states to treat same-sex couples with full equality in their family and adoption laws. That's Senator Obama's position. In another place, he writes, I support the complete repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act, a position I've held since before arriving in the U.S. Senate. While some say we should repeal only part of the law, I believe we should get rid of that statute altogether. I've also called for us to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and I have worked to improve the Uniting American Families Act so we can afford same-sex couples the same rights and obligations as married couples in our immigration system. In 1996, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act by a vote of 342 to 67 in the House and 85 to 14 in the Senate, and President Bill Clinton then signed that into law. So what uh, Senator Obama wants to do is completely over, overturn that, and even though he says he is in favor of traditional, uh, traditional marriage, what happens here is once you lower the bar, once you open the door, to, uh, in effect, civil union letting uh, same-sex couples have all the privileges, legal privileges, and rights that married couples do. Uh, It doesn't matter what you call it. A marriage is a marriage, and it leads to the further collapse of the the, uh, culture. Uh, Along with this, uh, (coughs) Senator Obama supports gay pride celebrations and school (coughs) curricula that promotes homosexuality, He also opposes parental involvement in education where they could stop that. He opposes traditional marriage and traditional marriage amendments. Excuse me. He opposes traditional marriage amendments that are currently on the ballot in both California and Florida. Uh, Although Senator Biden, his running mate, made the comment that he supports traditional marriage when he was in California and asked what he would do if voting on the amendment that he would vote uh, against traditional marriage. So that gives their position. In contrast, the views of McCain and Palin are really not all that great. Uh, both of them uh, hold to traditional marriage, but they have uh, both allowed for certain civil union benefits to same-sex partners, which just begins to gradually uh, eat away at traditional marriage. However, they both oppose supporting uh, gay pride celebrations, and they both oppose education curricula that promotes homosexuality. 
So that gives us an analysis of how you take what the Bible says about marriage. We'll get into family a little bit on Tuesday night, but primarily Tuesday night I want to look at what the Bible says about the role of government and the limitations of government and nations to wrap up this particular study and apply that to uh, what's going on today. So let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful we had this opportunity to study your word today to realize that uh, righteousness and ethics are indeed important in relation to uh, any nation, as your word proclaims, and that we cannot separate uh, all of these things out. And unfortunately, we're often faced with the reality of a choice that is not between that which is good or better, but between that which is bad or worse, and it's difficult to make decisions in those realms. But we have your word. It gives us absolute guidelines and gives us a framework for addressing every single issue in life. We're reminded from your word that we're all sinners. We've all committed all of these sins, not just uh, uh, the egregious ones, but many of the worst sins are, wor- are, are the sins of, uh, of uh, mental attitude, sins of arrogance, sins of pride, sins of judging others. But we know that all sins were paid for by Christ on the cross, so it does not matter what sin any have committed. Jesus Christ paid the penalty so that they might have eternal life. Father, we pray that there's anyone this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The minute you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life. And whatever uh, sins you've committed aren't the issue. The issue is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? And that is the basis for condemnation, acceptance, or rejection of the gift, of the free gift of salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study today, that our thinking would have been uh, challenged in light of your word and in light of uh, that we might have a better understanding of how to apply your word to the challenges we face today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.